Good morning. Good morning. Did you see the frost this morning? <laughs> frost at our house. For Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 2.10. Studies in the Confession taught by uh, Jared, again, that's 9.30, uh, right here. Uh, we're, we're, we're trying to figure out God. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, it's really good. Um, it'll, it'll stretch your mind a little bit and change the way you think. So, uh, come out and be with us, 9.30. Today's our communion service, and as is our tradition... We'll take a little break and then regather when you hear the music. Uh, then, of course, no, no evening service or choir after the communion service. Men's Bible study, Tuesday, 10 a.m. at the McLeods. You'll see again the, uh, the note there about uh, the mission conference. Um, we want to 
to you to, to sign up there on the, uh, the helps board, which is this one right outside of that door, um, for the uh, October the 14th. Uh, Pastor Birch will be here. If you've not heard him, you'll want to be here to hear him. If you have, you'll still want to be here to hear him. Um, also, uh, financially, you'll be wanting to think about your pledge for this year. See the note there regarding this Meritons purse? Lots of need. Uh, I'm sure you've all seen the images on television. Uh, the, I saw one this morning. They had, I think it was in Puerto Rico, they had one area in a community had gotten their first truck of relief in yesterday. So they had had nothing to that point. So, uh, And you see, the, again, the note there who, uh, for thank you to those who helped with Gladys' funeral. Amen. All right. I have one more announcement, and I don't know what I did with it. Oh, here it is. <laughs> Re regarding uh, Gladys' funeral, um, we're going to do uh, today's benevolent fund uh, will be uh, for a love gift. And um, if you're not going to be here for that, you can see uh, Laura uh, for that. Also, uh, there is a card uh, to sign. All right. Scripture for meditation then this morning, Job chapter 7, read 1 through 21.
Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless our service this morning. Phil, can I pick on you again? standing. Good morning. Can you please take your brown hymnals and turn to 267, number 267. <clears throat>
try to play the whole verse through once and then I'll sing one.
reading this morning is 2 Corinthians 12, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Stand with us and we'll read. <clears throat> I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I wish, should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. May God add his blessing on his word. Take your brown hymnal again and turn to page 279. 279 in the brown. Thank you. 
Our scripture text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In discussing the subject, Believers Under Trial, last week we learned that God hurts too, even when we do not think so. The Greek concept of the gods was that they were capricious deities who inflicted pain and suffering on people on a whim. These gods were nothing more than deified men. Well, sometimes we bring accusations towards God which are not worthy of his character and frankly not very worthy of us who are called by his name. We looked at some of these. God doesn't know what I'm going through. Really? He who knows all things doesn't know what you're going through. Let me say that if God is in the trial, he sent it, and he controls it, and he certainly knows what you're going through. Secondly, well, God doesn't care what I'm going through. This could be a poor me, or it might be truly believed that God, because of his seeming inaction, does not care what's happening to us. There is a view of God called theism, which says God got things going in the universe, start like a clock, he wound up the spring, and then he left, and you guys are on your own. Goodbye, I'm out of here, I did my work, da-da-da-da-da. That's not the God of the Bible. You will not find that God in the scripture. Delay on God's part does not mean that he is indifferent. Number three, Sometimes we think, even God can't help me now. In other words, the situation has deteriorated so badly that even God is powerless to rescue. Well, all these accusations are on a downward spiral. You can see what each one of them goes a little lower than the previous one. Behind the accusation is the notion that God, because he is God, is immune to pain and suffering, which means he cannot sympathize with our lot in life. We are created in God's image, however, we learned. So God's personality is the pattern for our own. What we feel, he feels. We ought not to forget that. Now today, we're going to look at the subject of why God sends trials into our lives. And as we come, let's ask the Lord to be with us and teach us. Holy Father, send your spirit upon us to teach us from your word. What is the word? It is the sword of the spirit. It is the means by which the spirit of God reaches us and touches us and convicts us and yes, teaches us. Help us with our self-pity Help us with our lack of faith. Help us to trust you more. We pray that you will do this firstly for your own glory, but secondly for our good. Because it's not good for us to be making accusations against God, as we just um, reiterated here. 
in terms of last week's message. Pray that you will bless us with the truth of your word and give us a right understanding of God. Though we are dull in our uh, comprehension, uh, we pray that you will remove the cloud of dullness and allow us to see at least some things clearly about our wondrous God, in whose name we pray. Amen. What is the reason for your confidence in God? A reason for it. You know from your outline that Christianity is a religion of reason as well as of faith. In many of the religions of the world, the devotees are expected to adhere to the tenets of their religion on the basis of what is called blind faith. We're sometimes accused of that. Don't ask questions, don't probe, don't investigate, just accept what is taught to you as the truth, believe it and act upon it, that's blind faith. It is the notion that if we try to figure things out, if we try to reason through them to see the logic, the purpose, the plan, the goal of God, we cannot possibly be people of faith. Well, let me ask this question. Is faith opposed to reason? These critics would answer, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but God, in whom we are to have faith, invites us, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Isaiah 1, verse 18. We belong to a reasonable faith. Last week we talked about the truth that man is created in the image of God and part of that image is man's capacity to reason, to think things through, to come up with knowledgeable decisions. We're learning that in the adult classes. We <coughs> excuse me, study under Jared the nature of God. It's part of our makeup to try to discover why we have to do the things we do in a certain way, or how someone else did what they did, including God. And usually we voice our inquiries with the question, why? Why? And many times the biblical authors volunteer the why by stating their reasons for doing things up front. Let me give you some illustrations. In John 5, verse 18, we read, For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, that is Jesus. Not only was he breaking this Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So that was their reason for trying to kill him. They had a reason for it. This guy's claiming to be God. Who? What blasphemy? Let's kill him. Let's silence him. In John 10, Jesus says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. There's a reason why he's here, why he's come. Paul says after praising Timothy, uh, 
Timothy's godly attributes to the Corinthians brethren, he says this, For this reason I'm sending to you, Timothy, my son whom I love, who's faithful to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17. He has a, he's got a reason for sending Timothy and, let's say, not somebody else that might be there. Concerning Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, admonish them to discipline a man that was living in incest. Paul writes, the reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. 2 Corinthians 2 Verse 9, are you going to do something with this man? Are you just going to let him live on and shame Christ and shame the church? To the Ephesian brethren, Paul wrote, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So his prayers are based on what he knows about the Ephesian church and their fidelity to Christ. Even when change, explaining the change in the covenants between the old covenant and the new, the writer of Hebrews states, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And for this reason, it can never, by that same sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Hebrews 10 verse 1. Peter talks about the exceeding great and precious promises of God and concludes, For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. 2 Peter 1, the first verses 5 through 7. So you can see that time and again, the biblical authors or teachers, including Jesus himself, give reasons for what they have taught or did. It's not a blind faith. It's a reasonable faith. It's not a leap of faith. It's a logical faith. They want their hearers to know that there is a rationale an intellectual purpose behind their conduct or what they are asking others to do. It's not their goal to mass things in darkness and mystery and then tell you, oh, just believe. Well, we want you to believe. But we want you to believe because it's reasonable. It's the right thing to do. Secondly, you can know what God wants you to know and not what he withholds. I put this point in here because it's important for us to know that God is under no obligation to tell you why you are going through certain things. He may tell you, okay. He may give you a reason. Or, he may not. We have no authority to demand of God that he answer us when we ask, Why? The silence of God may be part of his plan, an integral ingredient of your sanctification. 
You will recall that neither Job nor his wife nor any of his friends were told by God why Satan was allowed to afflict Job with his loss of health. In fact, the book closes with God questioning Job, but not with him explaining to Job all the intricacies as to why he had to endure such suffering. And I would add that it wasn't for Job's lack of trying to find out. Listen to him as he speaks. Job says, I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. Job 13, verse 3. Or again, if only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Job 23, verse 3 and 5. What he is saying is that he would prepare, prefer a face-to-face -face with God to air his complaints. Oh, and again, one more. Job 31, verse 35. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sigh now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Would you talk to God that way? Job did. Very upset. So time and again, Job sought answers from God as to why he was experiencing this trial. But heaven was silent until the closing chapters of the book and even then, Job's pride is humbled as God questions him for his complaints when, in fact, Job had no concept of the bigness and the power of God as he controls the universe. And it was God's way of saying, I govern the universe, but all you're concerned about is yourself. I know what I'm doing. You do not. I have not forgotten you. Leave it there. Trust me. God will sometimes say the same thing to you in your inquiry. You want to know. So you pray for answers. But the heavens are brass. Nothing seems to penetrate. God appears to be deaf or unconcerned. This is God's way of saying to you, trust me, leave it to me, leave it alone. God does not always share his secrets. There's a mystery to God. You're not intended to figure him out exhaustively. At other times, he tells us what he is doing and why. This we find in his word in the form of general principles that may apply to your case or may not. This will still net us some lack of peace if God gives you no reason for what you are experiencing. But then you are to take hope in the fact that God has made precious promises of security 
and care and love to you that he has given no other people on the earth. Scripture talks about exceeding and precious promises. Now having said all that, let me suggest some reasons behind your trials. Number one, they're in the bulletin there. To prove God true and Satan a liar. Cannot be denied that the trial Job experienced was one of the most demanding and most extensive recorded in biblical history. We have 42 chapters, by the way, predating all the other Old Testament books, including Genesis. The first book written in the Bible is not Genesis. It's Job. You say, well, well then why is, why is Genesis the first? Because the guys that compiled the books <laughs> were not the ones that wrote the books. What the man went through in one day would make most of us question our loyalty to God. One, just one day. Of Job, verse 3, it says he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Great in what way? Great in wealth. 7,000 sheep. Whoa, that's quite a herd of, herd of sheep, isn't it? A flock. 3,000 camels. I'm reading scripture. 500 yoke of oxen, so that's 1,000. 500 donkeys and a large number of servants. That was his wealth. He was great in family. He had ten children. Ten. Great in friends, four of whom dedicated a goodly portion of their time and energy to try to comfort Job in his trial. Now, when we read some of the things they said to him, we might scratch our head and say, well, that's not very comforting. But they were trying. They, they were trying to get to the bottom of what was going on in his life with God testing him. But let me say that Job was great in the best way. God's own testimony of him is this. This man, speaking of Job, this is God talking. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God. That is, he reverenced God and he shunned evil. Verse 2. There weren't many men like that in Job's day. And what God is saying is that Job lived his faith. He was not an armchair Christian philosopher. We cannot find an, a more honest, a more sincere, a more righteous man at this time in history and the very least of candidates for the punishment of God. Job was not sinless, however. He had his moments of complaint. We just read some of them. He, he had his moments of murmuring and questioning. There's a lot of arrogance in the book by Job. But what I want you to see is that his story is not so much about how loyal he was to God, but how his loyalty to God was based on God's grace and love to him and not in his good fortune. 
The accusation of Satan concerning Job's integrity was this. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands. But, but, God, stretch out your hand, strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Job 1, verse 9 and 5. We hardly think about the battle for men's souls which rage in the heavenly realms above us. They rage every day. Job was part of the battle of his day. God praised him for his blamelessness. And Satan said his loyalty to God was due to God's protective hedge around him and his already blessed life. If this were true, then Job deserves no more praise or appreciation than any other man. God just could be as easily have picked any man off the street, blessed him with money, wealth, influence, with a loving family and copious amounts of friends, and voila, who wouldn't adore God for all of that? That was Satan's suggestion. You've bought yourself a loyal believer, Satan was saying to God. Of course, Job loves you. I mean, everything he touches turns to wonderful. And so God agreed to this contest, God versus Satan. Satan doing his worst against Job to expose the chink in the armor of his loyalty. When the money and the wealth ran out, of course, he was suggesting when that happens, then Job will drop God like a hot potato. And God, showing through Job's testimony to his wife and friends, that he intended to stick with God no matter what, was quite a surprise to Satan. Job 13, verse 18, he says of God, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Oh, you think it has to do with the fact that I'm broke, <laughs> that he's reduced me to abject poverty. Well, let me tell you, if he takes my life, I'll still trust him. Or again, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, you see, he doesn't expect to survive the trial. After my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. And how my heart yearns within me. Job 19. Verse 25 and following. Now that doesn't sound to me like a man who serves God for money. It doesn't sound like a man who's ready to curse God and die. No, it sounds like the man at the very beginning of the trial who said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job 1, verse 21. 
And here, I think we catch a glimpse of Job's philosophy of life, and in particular of his spiritual life. He came into this world, as we all do, naked and without any fortune. So, if he leaves this world in that same condition, he's no better and he's no worse for wear. God has done him no ill. God remains God. Job remains Job. And he's okay with that. But there's something more here. Job counts God worth more than family, friends, fortune, and material blessings. Job is hurting, but he's not forsaken. He has God, which is a whole lot more than can be said for his contemporaries. So if he leaves this world penniless and naked, he's still blessed, he's still rich towards God. Bottom line, Satan was sorely defeated in this whole contest. God's opinion of Job remained unchallenged. Job remained loyal and faithful. His fortune and his family were restored. Satan and the worst that he could inflict lie defeated in the dust, licking his wounds and proven once again that his assessments of God and his people are deeply flawed. Paul wants you and I to know something about the trials with which we contend. He says it this way, our struggle, speaking of the Christians now, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil, In the heavenly realms, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, when the day comes, not if, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Ephesians 6, verse 12 and 13. This is the new covenant promise equivalent equivalent to what occurred with Job. The Ephesian church was concerned about the suffering Paul was enduring in prison and what that might mean for them as followers of Christ. What was God up to? I mean, what what would be the outcome? Were the forces of evil winning? So Paul explains God's purpose in Ephesians 3. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. 
which are your glory. Ephesians 3, verse 10 through 13. Look upon your trials as your glory, as a way to display God's wisdom to all the sinister rulers in the heavenly realm who believe allegiance to God is doomed. It's all too easy to be uninformed or misinformed about the persecution of Christians around the world. And boy, are we seeing that in our day. It's a topic that disturbs us to the core, so we don't like to think about it. But think about it, we must, because these are our brothers and sisters in the faith. And we may be next. How will we respond? Just this past week, a lone gunman shot and killed a 39-year-old woman as she was exiting a church prayer meeting in Tennessee. <laughs> what could be more innocuous than going to a prayer meeting at church? She's coming out of the church building and she's shot. CNN reported, a gunman in the church parking lot shot and killed Melanie Smith as she was walking to her car. The shooter then entered the church through the sanctuary's main door with two pistols and began indiscriminately shooting. Metropolitan Nashville Police Department spokesman said there were approximately 50 people still inside the sanctuary when the shooting began. Six were wounded by gunfire, another one was pistol whipped. A church usher, just 22 years old, saw the shooting and confronted the gunman. During a struggle, the gunman mistakenly shot himself. It would appear he was not expecting a brave individual like the church usher to initiate struggle and confrontation. Well, Jesus' prediction has become a reality. All this I have told you, he said to his disciples, so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue, and in fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. John 16, the first three verses. The community in Tennessee was praising that usher, Mr. Engel, for stopping that gunman in his tracks, but the hero himself downplayed his involvement. This is what he said. I've been going to this church my whole life since I was a small child. I would have never, ever thought something like this would have happened. He asked for prayers for the victims and their families and added, please pray for the shooter, the shooter's family and friends. They are hurting as well. Hmm. No vengeance here, no rage, no breathing down hate and retaliation on this, by this shooter, but rather a forgiving spirit of kindness and well-wishing. One reason you and I suffer is to prove God true 
and Satan a liar. When bad things happen to God's people, we do not curse God to his face. We say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. Secondly, trials come our way to advance our sanctification. Our text brings before us a hurt apostle, and the hurt is physical, but it's spiritually motivated. It's another occasion of God in the trial, but using Satan as the tormentor. Within context, Paul talks about his tremendous vision he saw in heaven when he was caught up to the third heaven and saw and heard things that he was not permitted to write about. The third heaven is a place beyond our immediate atmosphere. It was said of Jesus' ascension that he passed through the heavens, Hebrews 4.14, that he ascended higher than all the heavens, Ephesians 4, verse 10, that he's now exalted above the heavens, Hebrews 7, verse 26. Paul calls it paradise, verse 4 of our text. And he uses the very word designating the place Jesus referenced to the thief on the cross when he said to that thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. I read the account of a Christian in a Christian magazine in which a woman claimed to have died and gone to heaven. And she proceeded to describe heaven as a place of serenity and peace. Hello. Well, what else would it be? <laughs> Therefore, she met and talked with her grandmother and gave her instruction on how her life would be restored to health and so on and so on. Another, a Dr. Mary Neal, an orthopedic surgeon pushes her book to heaven and back in which she claims to have died in a kayak drowning in Chile and in her words was greeted by 10 or 12 spirits who said she must return to earth to become, get this now, for her to become the spiritual rock for her family and to tell her story to help people find God. Hmm. These kind of stories hit the tabloids on occasion. They're all bogus. You, you can't say that. I'm saying it. They're, they're all bogus. Had such people ever gone to heaven wherein God dwells, if God would not permit... The Apostle Paul, to tell anything that he saw or heard in heaven, what makes you think that he would permit such of others? Whatever the experience, their explanation of their experience is different than reality. Paul was not permitted to speak about such things. And as to being sent back from death to testify of God and how to come to know God, do you all remember the account of the rich man who died and Lazarus the beggar? 
who also died. Lazarus entered into his peace, but the rich man, an unbeliever, was being tormented in hell. And here's what he said. I beg you, Father, and he's talking to Abraham, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, they have the scriptures that Moses wrote, which is the first five books of our Bible, and the prophets is all the other books of the Old Testament that were written. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Let them listen to the scripture. Here's his response. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. <laughs> and Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Hmm, do we know someone who rose from the dead? Have they believed the words of Christ? Truer words never spoken. Paul witnessed heavenly visions that he was not permitted to disclose. Even more revealing, verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Many have tried to guess what this thorn might have been. Some suggest, well, it was his poor eyesight or some other physical ailment. Truth be known, we don't know. All we know is that the thorn was ministered by a messenger of Satan, who's that? That's a demon, to torment me. Whatever it was. You all know that a thorn is not life-threatening, but boy, it sure is annoying. (laughs) Every time you turn around, there's that prick of pain. You try to think, there it is again. You try to move, and ouch, it's nagging me again. If you're like me, you get the needle out, and you heat the needle, and sterilize it, and you go to pick at it, and i got to get that thorn out of there. Paul believed that his ministry was being severely hampered by this, and so he pleaded with the Lord on three separate occasions for God to remove the thorn. But three times God said, No, no, no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power, my power, is made perfect in weakness. Verse 8. Paul might have tended to become swelled-headed because of the extraordinary revelations God gave him of heaven and other things. But the thorn kept him humble. The thorn kept him weak. The thorn was a constant reminder wherein greatness and strength really lie. 
Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Verse 9, verse 10. Your trials, whatever they are, advance your sanctification too. They keep you humble. They deal with such things as pride and conceit and know-it-allness and all of those things which people of the world exhibit. Third reason for trials is to teach in the school of hard knocks what you refuse to learn in the school of biblical instruction. Listen to the psalmist. He says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. <laughs> but now, now I obey your word. You are good. And what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Psalm 119, verse 67 and verse 68. And then four verses later, he gives the analysis. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Psalm 119, verse 71 and 72. There may be an indication here that what the psalmist considered most precious was his silver and his gold. Maybe he didn't put much value on the treasure trove hidden in God's word. Riches that save the soul, that feed the soul, that quiet the soul, that encourage the soul, that remind us of Jesus' warning. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Mark 8, verse 36. Got to weigh things out here. Well, let's see. A bag of gold or my soul lost for all of eternity in a burning hell. Hmm. Bag of gold, lost soul. Which is more precious? Are you running the rat race? Busy here, busy there, busy everywhere, busy making a living, busy paying bills, busy living for pleasure, busy consumed with personal issues, hurting in so many dimensions of your life. Well, might God be using these things to call you back to him? To beckon you, where have you been? What are your priorities? Jesus stated it this way, life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. There's a sign on the church way up north on M24 and the sign, it's a, it's a church sign. It says, welcome back, where you been? <laughs> I thought, there's a frustrated pastor. 
<laughs> I'm sure he put the sign out on the on the signboard. Welcome back. Where you been? One day after Jesus had taught some pretty heavy-duty teaching about his work of atonement for sinners, John tells us, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. John 6, verse 66. In other words, the teaching was considered too difficult. They wanted candy cotton not meat and potatoes. They had, no, they had not bargained that Jesus would demand that they think and consider and meditate and chew and digest and seek answers for the hard questions of life. And so John relates. Then Jesus turned and said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? You see all these people leading? You want to follow them, the crowd? You also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, (laughs) to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Wow. The easy road is the broad path that leads to hell, and so when we take that path... In disobedience, God sometimes sends trials, may I say hard knocks, to teach us what we refuse to learn in the school of biblical instructions where the words of eternal life are found. If he sends hard knocks into your life, it's an attempt to turn you around to help you reconsider the priorities of your life. So that's a glory from God. He could let you... Just go on doing what you're doing and end up where you don't want to go. And then finally, God sends trials into our life in order to bring glory to God. When Jesus and his disciples came upon the man born blind, his disciples asked Jesus, the first question which popped into their head. <laughs> Sometimes the first questions that pop into our head aren't worthy of us. Here was their question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? John 9, verse 2. They postulated but two conclusions as to why a man was born with the deformity of no sight. Either he had sinned, think about this now, before his birth, <laughs> that he had been born blind. Well, that's what they're suggesting. That either he had sinned, or more likely his parents had sinned, and so the consequence for the parent was that a blind child was their punishment. Jesus' answer must have shocked the disciples. When he said, neither this man nor his parents sin, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in this man's life. John 9, verse 3. Wow. Just think about that. From birth to adult status, 
birth to adult status, all those years converging on one moment in time when Jesus would place mud on his eyes and command him to go and wash in a pool. And we read, so the man went and washed and came seeing. John 9, verse 7. You mean to tell me God would have someone born blind live all of through his young child years, through his teen years, through his college age years, as a blind person, just waiting for the day when Jesus would come along and see him, put mud on his eyes, and tell him to go wash in a pool and come back, and he did, and he came back see. Brethren, your trials, whatever your trials, can result in the glory of God, depending on how you handle them. The blind man answered the Pharisees who were hell-bent on branding Jesus as a sinner. Yeah, you got to tell, this guy's a sinner that told you to go do all those things. Listen to this blind man's response. It's just absolutely beautiful. Now that is, I'm reading scripture. Now that is remarkable, says the blind man. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. John 9. Verse 3 and following. Oh boy, did that get the Pharisees angry. You were all together born in sin and you're trying to teach us? That's what they said. Yeah, well, they needed to be taught the truth about Christ. This blind man saw more than the teachers of the law saw. You can hear his sarcasm. Oh, this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. <laughs> you, the teachers of the law, don't know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. Sometimes, brethren, God allows heartache to come into our lives and trials into our lives so that we have an occasion to explain to others the grace and the goodness of God when they see how you're handling the trial. You mean this happened to you and you're not falling apart? Boy, if that happened to me, I don't know what I'd say. Yeah, but it didn't happen to you. It happened to me and God's grace is sufficient. And God is getting me through. I'm not patting myself on the back, but 
God is getting me through and you don't know God and that's why it's a mystery to you. Wow. These are some heavy-duty reasons as to why you and I suffer and we need to think deeply about them. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It challenges us. It chides us. It rebukes us for our lack of faith. Bless the truths that we've heard this morning. May you be honored and glorified in them. Help us to see and understand the trials we experience and to love you for those times of weakness and sadness which you bring into our lives so that we might testify of the glory of God. Someday all our trials are going to end. And the world's trials are just going to begin. They think they have it tough now. But judgment day is coming. But reward day is coming for us. A blessed day is coming for us. Now if I lived to be a hundred like my dad. And I never had anything bad happen. hundred days. Wow that'd be great. hundred years. Excuse me. hundred years. But what is a hundred years compared to an eternity where time gets lost and swallowed up forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and there's no end? Would I take a hundred years of wonderfulness on earth? Would I trade that for an eternity in hell and destruction? I don't think so. But people do it all the time. They're putting their eggs in the wrong basket. Forgive us, Lord, for seeing things in you so cheaply. May we see the value of Christ and his salvation. For his glory and our good, we pray these things. Amen. From the Red Hymnal, number 568. just took Naomi to the hospital. So, uh, urgent care. Something's going on there. So let's pray for Na Naomi and Andrea and uh, sing this hymn. Our Lord, we just pray that you will intercede and watch over her, our little one. Please build a hedge around her. Bring her through the trial. And we're going to sing about it right now. In the hour of trial, Jesus, plead for me. Let's stand together and sing. Five, six, eight in Trinity.
10 minutes. We'll take a 10 minute break. Regroup when you hear the music. Thank you.